that you love to do that very thing. So as we sang, I pray, come more alive. Thank you. Amen. So to get things started, I have a question for parents. First one's kind of painful. You remember something you really wish you had not said or had not done with one of your kids? See a lot of heads. Now, how long did you have to think to come up with something? Maybe already today. Some of us would have a hard time just thinking of one thing, right? I mean, we know we're not perfect, but it can be really frustrating or really painful to think about something specific that illustrates we're imperfect as parents. But go to a happier part of parenting. For a moment, think of a gift. A gift you gave one of your kids, and it was one of those gifts that they just went nuts over. It just linger in that memory for a few moments. Pretty much any parent knows what it feels like to mess up and to get it right. And that reality has kept one Bible verse near the top of my thoughts for a very long time now. And I'm thinking about it more than normal lately. Um, Oh, I need to get this out. Oh, gadgets, gadgets, gadgets. North America, you and your gadgets. There. See if this is going to work for us. Yeah. The Redemption Hill campuses are starting a Sunday morning study of the book of Luke. And in one of our conversations about the series, I mentioned to Pastor Dennis that I did what turned into a three-year series in Luke at English Fellowship Church in Quito. And Dennis asked if there were things that stood out to me more than others in that series, and I, I really didn't have to think very long. I told him about that verse that I just mentioned and and how that verse grabbed me really tightly by the heart the week we hid it in the study and how it keeps digging deeper into my heart and my mind. And I'm going to try to explain why that is this morning. And this is the verse, and it's from a Bible version that doesn't get used very often. And in light of what I put out there for parents a few moments ago, think about what Jesus was saying. Look, all of you are flawed in so many ways. No amens, huh? (laughs) Yet in spite of all your faults, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to all who ask? Now, in the original language, the words in the second sentence for more and for give were used more like keep on giving and keep on giving abundantly. So, how much more will your Father in heaven keep giving you the Holy Spirit. Does that stir anything inside you? Anything at all? As I've dug into that verse, 
God linked it to a very vivid image that stirs something in me as much as anything from 25 years in Ecuador. Ecuador is one of the most diversely beautiful little countries in the world, and there is no end to the spectacular things you can see all over that country. But the image that is stuck in my mind came in a very dull, sterile place. And it came while waiting for my doctor to do my biannual physical. And I noticed one of these. And all the men over 50 cringed. There's not anything really unusual about that in a hospital, but my doctor was an hour late, and I was getting bored, and this constantly swirling brain of mine got me thinking about all the things that glove could be used for in that hospital. I mean, from doing the most delicate surgery to scrubbing the nastiest public toilets and anything in between. And as I stared at that glove, I began thinking about how that glove was really kind of useless just sitting there. And, And it would stay that way until someone slipped a hand into it. And whose hand slipped into it would make all the difference in the world. Anything could happen to it depending on who grabbed it and pulled it on. Brain surgeon to custodian. And I realize this is going to take more explanation, but as I looked at that glove, I began to notice that line from Luke playing over and over and over in the back of my mind. And again, that verse, how much more will your Father in heaven keep giving you the Holy Spirit? And the image of that surgical glove stuck in my head long after my doctor's appointment. And it seemed like every time I thought of it, that verse from Luke would pop back into my mind. And I began thinking about and studying it as much as any verse I've ever come across. And as I dug into it, I found another thing Jesus said that grabbed my heart just as hard. That one was recorded by John. And before long, those two verses, the one from Luke and the one from John, combined to draw my heart and my mind deeply into one line from a letter Paul wrote. So, A line from Paul, a line from John, and the one from Luke mixed together in my heart and my mind, and they continue to hit me as hard as anything I have ever found and make me long to know just how much my Father in heaven wants to keep giving me the Holy Spirit and what that could really mean for my life. And the line from John came from what we remembered earlier. I mean, the most amazing, intense night Jesus' first and closest followers had with him. Based on what you know about Jesus, just think about how you would describe him that night. How would you describe Jesus? The Jesus you know, how would you describe him in general? And what kind of a guy do you think he was? What do you think it'd be like to just spend an evening with him? 
Now, I realize this could be a real stretch for some of you, but try to think about living with Jesus in person for three years, basically camping out together as you make your way back and forth across an area about the size of the greater L.A. area. What kinds of things do you see you doing together? What kinds of conversations do you think you'd have? Just think, what would mealtimes be like? Then, during an exceptionally personal, intimate time, try to imagine Jesus rocking your world by telling you, He's leaving. I mean, after three years of having your entire world turned completely upside down by him, he tells you he's leaving you. And then he quickly adds the line that's hit me so hard from John. He said, it's to your advantage. Other versions of the Bible say, it's better for you that I go away. Now, we're a week on the other side of what is called Easter. I mean, we know all about it. But if you could go to when Jesus told them he was going away, they did not have a clue what was coming, although the thought of not having him around had to have been more than they could take. Yet he told them it would be better for them if he left. Now, I suspect what Jesus added to that statement confused them more than calmed them down. Because he said, if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I don't believe they would have believed having this helper would be better than having Jesus around. And at that point in history, I do not believe they would have believed having some helper would be better than having Jesus around. I don't believe they could believe anything would be better than having Jesus around. And nothing could have prepared them for all that was going to erupt around them over the next few days as Jesus was ripped away from them. And he left. And then they had a weekend to face a tsunami of emotions, knowing Jesus was dead. Now, we're a week on the other side of Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. I cannot even begin to imagine what it was like a week later for them. For them, a week after the resurrection. I mean, they would have had to have been completely out of their minds about the reality of that line from Paul that I mentioned a moment ago. God raised Jesus from death. We cannot imagine the excitement among his followers as they tried to get their minds around that a week after that first Easter. I wonder what they thought about his warning, if they ever thought about it at all, about how he had said he was going away. 
I mean, they still could not have understood about the helper he had talked about, and I doubt they even really cared about the helper because, man, they had Jesus back with them. Now, obviously, they didn't have anything like Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, but the weekend after his ridiculous trial, the horrific torture, and the crucifixion, try to imagine how word spread. God raised Jesus from death. And that came after three days of horrific anguish for them. And, and, and that had likely taught them how much they really longed for him. That, that weekend of anguish likely taught them how much they needed him. And because of that, they may have thought they understood how it had been to their advantage that he go away. I mean, the part about the helper who was supposed to come still wouldn't have made much sense, but it wouldn't have mattered because God raised Jesus from death. They didn't know that in just a few weeks he was going to leave them again. That time, as, as Luke reported it, Jesus was taken up into a cloud while they were watching. Can't possibly even begin to imagine the looks on their faces. We also don't know how long it took any of them to make a connection to what Jesus had said. It's to your advantage. It's better for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Man, what a contrast from the first time he went away. I mean, no whips, no clubs, no spit, no nails, no blood, no cross, no sealed tomb. Simply taken up into a cloud while they were watching. Now, a turn of the page in Acts brings us to where and how the helper came. Like a roaring wind and huge tongues of fire. As much a part of the incomprehensible Trinity as ever, the helper, the Holy Spirit, began this new phase in his ministry. One that is better for followers of Jesus than if Jesus were here like he was then. The Holy Spirit is here. In a way he could not be without the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And Paul believed the Holy Spirit is more than just here. If you believe God raised Jesus from death, Paul would say you can personalize what he wrote next. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in me. If you truly believe God raised Jesus from death, Break, break the next part of the statement into pieces and, and slow it down. 
the Holy Spirit lives in me. Now, the image of this latex glove makes one tiny word from that more amazing to me the more I think about it. It's the word in. Because without him, I am as helpless as this glove. But it says God's Spirit now lives in me. And more fully and more literally, Paul wrote, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in me. And I'm not trying to get a pep rally going. But if that is true for you, repeat it out loud. At least to hear and to feel what it sounds like coming out of you. Say it. If it's true of you, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in me. Again, I'm not trying to get a pep rally going. But say it again. Think about it first. Now say it. The Holy Spirit. Whoa, stop. Who? Who? Told you I'm not trying to get a pep rally going. But oh my goodness, there's got to be more than the Holy Spirit. Who? The Holy what? The Holy is. 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 What? Where? Who? Who? Now the title to the opening of Romans 8 in many Bibles is Life Through or Life in the Spirit. Then Paul went on to mention the Spirit 17 times in just a dozen verses. It's the only place in all we have from Paul where he repeated anything that often in that small of a space. And it seems clear to me Paul was truly amazed by the Holy Spirit, especially by how the Holy Spirit had come to live in him and live through him. And I don't think I could overstate Paul's amazement about the Holy Spirit dwelling in him or about what it took to get the Holy Spirit there. Remember the horror of Jesus' torture and crucifixion. And the amazement for Paul really began to settle in as he wrestled with the reality and the immensity of sin, and he confessed that deep within himself. And I believe we will not begin to be truly amazed by salvation until we begin to be truly sickened by sin and sins. That part of Paul's journey is recorded in the first seven chapters of Romans. And chapter 7 is unlike anything else Paul wrote. And in a very short space, he used the word I almost 20 times. And it was very rare for him to talk much about himself. And I just picture him burying his face in his hands in shame and in agony as the Holy Spirit led him to admit, 
I often don't understand my own actions. Can you relate? I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, can you relate? I, I want to I do what's good, but I often don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I often do it anyway. Now, can you relate? Wretched man or woman or child, it's not a gender thing. It's not an age thing. Wretched man that I am. Man, this was someone we would say had walked with the Lord, ministered, pastored, planted churches all over the civilized world for more than two decades. Yet he was confronted by the weight and the ugliness of sin and sins, especially in him. And it's as though the Holy Spirit led Paul to experience personally what he had written about generally a little earlier, and that is, where sin increased, grace increased even more. And I am so grateful for that. Because when, when the Holy Spirit first led me to Jesus, I was really only aware of a few sins in my life. Can you relate? I mean, when he first led me to Jesus, I was really only aware of a few sins in my life. And back then, many churches, many camps, many youth groups invited me to share my testimony of finding freedom from sex, drugs, and rock and roll because it was the 80s. Now, over 25 years later, I'm more aware of sins. And I am aware of far more sins that taunt me and haunt me, many of which none of you know anything about. <laughs> As men like Paul and Peter said in many different ways, folks, we all struggle with sin and sins in different ways and to different degrees at different times. Sin is the core problem every human being has. Sins are what come from it. And for those who have genuinely surrendered to him, Jesus took care of the sin and its penalty. And the Holy Spirit moves into those who believe that, in part to work on our sins and their power, longing to work on them at their roots. And, and the fact that those sins bother me the way they do is evidence that the Holy Spirit is in me. Because without Him, my natural tendency is to not really care about them or to try to take care of them on my own. But the Holy Spirit wants to do His supernatural work penetrating, illuminating the deepest, the darkest corners of this heart and mind of mine, transforming me where? From the inside out. And I'll never forget one time in a moment of Paul-like raw transparency on a run, I cried out, Holy Spirit, sometimes I'm not sure if I can really trust you in those places in me. Now, surrender can be scary. There is no telling what could happen. 
No telling what the Holy Spirit could point out that he needs to do in me or what he may want to do with me or through me. And true surrender transforms the kinds of things I've heard countless people say and have said a few times myself. Well, I can't change who I am. I've come to believe the Holy Spirit hears something like that and says, now you're getting close to the heart of the matter. You're right. You can't change who you are. Would you step out of the way and let me? Now, that's not to say I'm simply to flop down on the sofa while he does his work. I mean, there are just too many commands all through this book that say otherwise. Commands about things I need to do, about things that need to be changed in me. And commands about the way I need to get involved in things that need to be changed around me. But I must learn the first thing I need to do before trying to do anything is remember the Holy Spirit's in me. And in order to do anything that really needs to be done, I need Him. The first thing I need to do before I do anything is say, Holy Spirit, without you, I'm going to blow this. In fact, I'm probably not even going to want to, so would you start by changing the want to in me? And I'm going to need Him to keep my heart and my attitude right as I do things. Because if you look closely at the first 12 verses of Genesis 3, you'll see that because of what we inherited from Adam and Eve, our natural tendency is to hide in our own personal version of the bushes and to try to fix things ourselves. Have you noticed that to be true of you? We do that because we also inherited a natural tendency to distrust God a natural tendency to believe things would actually be better if we were leading the way, and a natural tendency to claim independence from Him rather than confess dependence on Him. And the Holy Spirit is here to work supernaturally against all of that, to work supernaturally on me, through me, in me. Jars of Clay, one of my favorite bands, redid one of my favorite old songs, I Need Thee Every Hour. When asked why they chose to do it, the pianist, Charlie Lowell, said, dude, it's about utter dependency. I think we could sing, I need thee every moment, every second. The beauty of it is we have him. Just as we can sing, I need thee every hour. We can sing, I have thee every hour, right? Do you know the song? I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee, bless me now my Savior, I come to thee, come, and the Holy Spirit longs to draw us closer, if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us, it says in here. The Holy Spirit longs to draw us closer, to teach us how safe our hearts are with Him because as Paul learned, in spite of all those sins or maybe because of all those sins, now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. 
Now, they didn't have exclamation marks in the original language, but there could have been a big one there. Now, there is no condemnation. Now, right now, at this very instant, no judgment pending. No mention of how much more God's going to love some future version of you. That's a lie from the pit of hell. God's going to love some future version of you. As soon as you get a little or a lot of stuff cleaned up, then he's really going to be crazy about you. No, it says now. 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 No condemnation. Now, we need to understand and or remember sometimes the Holy Spirit stirs up conviction in us, but conviction is very different from condemnation. Conviction says things like, dude, you need to stop that. Or, sweetie, you shouldn't say that. Condemnation says, dude, you're going to fry in hell because you even thought that. But Paul was saying, because of the faith the Holy Spirit gave you in what Jesus did, there is no condemnation for you, and because of that, the Holy Spirit moved into you. And he wants to teach you to live like he's in you, because he is. Now, Paul wasn't saying, there is therefore now no failure for those who are in Christ Jesus. He was not saying, there is no stumbling for those who are in Christ Jesus. He was not saying, there is no struggle for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, I would say one of the clearest signs that the Holy Spirit is working in me is that it bothers me and sometimes bothers me deeply that the struggle is there. But I'm not to struggle on my own because God's Spirit now lives in me. And I can sing or I can say what we sung earlier, come, Holy Spirit, come. Come more alive in me because he's there. So we're not saying come. We don't have to keep saying come because you're gone. He's there. So it's like, Holy Spirit, come alive. And let me try to wrap this up with the most graphic image of this I can think of, at least for me, and maybe you'll be able to pull something from it and, and use it with an illustration from your life. My, my birthday, I mentioned, I don't know, a couple of months ago is September 1st, and September 1st, right at the start of the school year, so I started first grade as young as I possibly could have. I had just turned five. And my brain must have worked a lot better back then than it does now because somehow I finished grades two and three in one year, and that meant I started high school at age 12 and graduated at 16. And if you look at me now, you can likely guess I wasn't exactly a threatening physical figure in high school. Started my senior year at a whopping 125 pounds. Wasn't anything I loved more than playing football. Why are you laughing already? <laughs> in spite of my size, I made the varsity team in a school of 1,600 students, mostly because getting knocked around a lot had become a normal part of life for me, in and out of sports. I had learned to not back down from anything, even if it made me cry. And I cried easily, and I cried a lot, but I was too dumb to quit. Between sports and fights, 
I got beat up, and I got beat up a lot. In football, I played defense, uh, safety and cornerback, to be exact, if that means anything to you. And my technique, if you want to call it that, was basically to just throw myself in front of the other guys, doing whatever was necessary to make them fall. My coaches kept trying to teach me something I didn't learn until after I finished playing and started coaching myself. And then the more I saw guys playing the way I used to play, the more I realized that's a really stupid way to play. (laughs) And I really saw that when I started playing rugby as an adult, and I began to learn a proper tackling technique. Many of you know this, right? You just bend your knees a little bit, and you you get your your weight up off your heels and onto the balls of your feet, and, and you drop your back end down. And as the guy with the ball is coming towards you, you keep your eyes right in the center of his chest. And when he's just the right distance away, you drop your back end down a little extra, you turn your upper body slightly, You set your feet as solidly as you possibly can up on the balls of your feet, and with as much force as you can, you spring upward into him and drive your shoulder pad into this spot right here. But the key was getting up off your heels. That's a valuable piece of advice no matter what sport you're playing. Because, folks, if you're leaning back, most of the time you're going to get beat and you're likely going to get hurt. And I still remember when I actually started doing it right. It didn't hurt. At least not as much. And it didn't hurt me (laughs) as much. When you did it right, the guy with the ball would make this really cool sound. I don't understand why the ladies are laughing at that. Dudes, you know, right? Oh, isn't that a sound? Oh, I just lost a lot of cred as a pastor. Folks, I'm often tempted to live the Christian life the same way. Just kind of back on my heels. On my own, naturally, I tend to linger on my shortcomings, and I tend to suck my thumb too long when I sin. And I end up like I used to play football. I'm back on my heels and just dangerously vulnerable and even at risk. And worse, I try to play all by myself. Come on. The Rams are coming to L.A., not just a one Ram. Anybody going to pay any money to go see one Ram play anyone? Well, maybe Rosie Greer. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Everybody under 40 is going, who? The Holy Spirit doesn't want us playing back on our heels. Paul learned that. And I picture Paul inviting me, inviting us to continue to learn to live entirely differently from what is natural, to play on an entirely different kind of team. And I believe that's who he was referring to earlier in Romans 8 when he spoke of us. Us. Then he went on to describe us as those who walk at more fully and more literally meant live. Us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, because God's Spirit now lives in us. 
which brings immeasurable life into that line I began with. Because if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who keep asking him? And Father... because of who the Holy Spirit is and what he's done throughout human history and what he longs to do and what he's able to do I look out I see faces of individuals cannot imagine the kinds of things that could and arguably should start happening and then as people continue to draw it together with others where the same thing is happening Man, the things that could happen in and from this place. We're going to sing this song of confession. And it's an individual confession, but it's also a corporate confession. If we realize we're singing it with others, boy, the kind of body, the kind of family you could make. And it's this great song of surrender. And as we prepare to sing it as a symbol of surrender, we're going to celebrate our offering. Because in a lot of ways, that's what offering is. It's, it's a symbol of our willingness to surrender. It's more than that, of course, but it is that. So lead us as we continue to worship you through our offering and then lead us in an ex- what could be an extraordinary time of confession. Amen. If you're a guest with us, our offering is an opportunity for a regular Sunday to give back.